wish everybody would leave me alone, yeah. They're always calling on my telephone. When I pick it up, there's no one there. So I walk outside just to take the air. Come on with me, cruising down the street. Who knows what you'll see, who you might meet, though. This brave new world's not like yesterday. It can take you higher than the Milky Way. Now I'm blinded, I can really see, yeah. No more bright lights, confusing me, though. Don't ask me why I'm feeling blue, cause loving you. Howdy, Sparks fans. This is your pal Christian Huey here, and you are listening to episode 22 of All You Ever Think About is Sparks. My guest today, I call the Zelig of the 1970s rock scene. For a while, this guy seemed to be everywhere at once. Sal Maida and his signature Rickenbacker bass have popped up in the most auspicious of places and lots and lots of those places. He played with Roxy Music, Milk and Cookies, The Runaways, and of course, a band called Sparks on their 1976 album Big Beat and its subsequent tour. But that's not all. He also had memorable encounters with the likes of Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, Mick Ronson. The list goes on and on and on. He wrote about all this and more in his 2017 half-autobiography, half-massive record review compendium called Four Strings, Phony Proof, and 345s. He makes a memorable appearance in the 2021 Sparks documentary by Edgar Wright, The Sparks Brothers, and he's one of the reasons I started to learn the bass myself. Before I play this interview, I do have to issue a caveat. I had to deal with some technical limitations during our interview, so the sound quality frankly isn't fantastic, but I hope you'll bear with us. And now, the coolest guy in rock who badly needs his own Wikipedia entry. Hint, hint, somebody get on that, guys. Mr. Salmeda. Hey, Sal. Hi. Okay. Hey, Thanks for your patience. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do it this way. You you never know what uh, we're gonna get. I I have to come clean. I, I live in a rural Panama, so I can never fully depend on uh, internet bandwidth or power in general. But hey, man. Thanks for making time for me t- today. No problem. Um, how's it going? How you doing out there? Uh, what part of you're in? New York City, right? I'm in uh, Queens. Queens. How's it going out there these days? Good. Good. Like the COVID and everything? Almost 70%. Went to my first live gig on Thursday night. Uh, I didn't play, but I was in the audience. Oh, I got you. Okay. So, you know, before we get into the uh, nitty gritty, uh, I wanted to bring up a couple of things. One is that uh, it was John... Dunbar, who yeah. um, hooked me up with you, and I didn't know who the guy was right. at the time, and now I know. 
that you guys were playing in John Sally Ride. Yeah, we're in a band together. Right. Yeah. So have you guys been playing a lot lately? <laughs> no. Nobody's oh. been playing a lot lately. Well, right. I guess uh, lately, sure. Yeah. We did a session last January, uh, a third album. We started a third album. I did a session for somebody else in February that's coming out in October. And I did uh, a record with someone that's out now. Yeah. That I did like a couple of years ago. So uh, in a nutshell, I've played the bass on about 10 tracks in a year and a half. Otherwise, uh, what I've been doing is writing a book and another and one, another one, a second one. Yeah. Is that, okay. yeah. Cause that's another thing I wanted to, to get into was, uh, the book. And, and by the way, also being all the way out here, I was not able to get a, a physical copy of, of your book. So I had to rely on, you know, whatever, um, uh, digital, um, uh, uh, excerpts I could find. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get that uh, to that in a second. I, I wanted to start off by talking to you about what, uh, stuff that's going on, uh, currently. And since this is a sparks podcast that I host right. here, I wanted to talk to you about that, uh, Edgar Wright documentary and how you got to be a part of that. Um, I was actually on tour in Europe and got an email or from Russell. Really? Yeah, inviting me to do this documentary. And that was, wow, I'm, I'm trying to think. It was like October 2018. And I think I filmed my bit in January 2019. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So this, is, this has been cooking for a long time. This has been cooking for a while. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how did it feel? reliving those old times and talking to this, you know, kind of a young guy, this director about all those experiences. Well, I didn't know who he was, but once I got there, I figured it out and I had seen baby driver mm -hmm. and loved it. And, um, also he was, a just the, the nicest, sweetest guy. And, uh, he, he knew everything about Sparks, and he knew a lot of stuff about me. You know, he knew I had been in Roxy music. And, yep. And uh, so we talked for a long time and got along great, and it was uh, it was pretty awesome. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what it was going to be. But uh, the day I shot my bit, Tony Visconti was there. Oh, I think, man. I think he went after me. And as I was, as I was coming up to the studio to, to do the interview, I said to myself, is that the singer of the Pesh Motor or am I hallucinating? <laughs> so it was like, that was Dave gone. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, wow, this is not like some rinky dink hour, uh, you know, documentary that's going to be on Netflix for like two weeks and, then I realized what a big deal this was going to turn into. Well, they did have Vince Clark from Depeche Mode on there as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic. It was, it was, it was great seeing you on there. 
<clears throat> I was really um, uh, pleasantly surprised by the film uh, when when I did see it. And I've been a Sparks fan uh, for a long time, not as long as you. Um, uh, but I, I have noticed that a lot of Sparks uh, players, you know, from years and decades past, that kind of fall into two categories. There are those yeah. who are, you know, you know, kind of happy for the experience, and you know, that's that was our time. And those who, you know, hold a grudge, and yeah. um, and I want to assume of those. Sure, and I don't want to name names, uh, but I mean, yeah. like, how do how do you fall? Uh, down uh, between oh, those, those still, two uh, <clears throat> I still keep in touch with them. I'm on great terms with them. Always was, even back then. Never, never had a crossword. Um, <clears throat> yeah, really good relationship. And uh, at last to this day, and I'm so happy for them, not only because of the documentary and this film coming out called The Net, but the fact that they're still doing amazing work and yeah. putting out great records you know it's, it's nice to be in a band it's well, nice to have been in a band that's still keeping up their standards and yeah in certain ways and you know and i'm sure in like kind of the more like selfish way if i can say like your name keeps coming up every yeah. you know what five or six years or whatever right by, by virtue of that fact um, which is great. Anyway, so you know, I, I'll I'll get to the big beat stuff, which I fucking love. Uh, I talked to Hilly uh, a couple of months ago, and you uh, guys were an incredible uh, duo together. But I, I, but you know, if if you'll just oblige me, I don't want to get to that yet. I I'm going to get as much as as I can out of this time that we've got together. Um, okay. So uh, so the book that you wrote, uh, four strings. Phony Proof, 345s. Uh, I haven't gotten a full copy of it yet, but I've read some some excerpts, but I got a lot of great things out of that. And one of those things is that, uh, well, number one, you've been a record collector since like a kid since and a you're kid. still keeping it up. Teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and number two, you know, I guess you... Uh, just like had a passion for the bass from watching what Bill Wyman or something. Uh, I had a passion for the bass, uh, basically from all the English guys. Uh, McCartney got to start with McCartney, uh, Bill, of course, Pete Quaif, Paul Samuel Smith from the Yardbirds, uh, you know, guys like that. And then also West coast guys like Chris Hillman of the birds mm -hmm. And Forcey of Love were really big and impactful uh, in, in my uh, development of wanting to be a bass player and what kind of style I wanted to develop and, and follow and the path I wanted to follow. So those those are just some of the, the guys, you know, and of course, James Jameson of Motown, I mean, Mm -hmm. Everyone was influenced by him, including sure, uh, and right. All the yeah, definitely. In fact, yeah. I mean, I've got other bass here. In fact, you know, one of the reasons I'm happy to talk to you is because I picked up the bass not too long ago, and it was something that just really clicked with me. I and gotta I, do that. With uh, <laughs> thank you. Well, you're part of the reason, to be honest. <laughs> uh, you and Tina, I do that. I you know, um, up and 
few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so that's uh, so that's great. You know, so uh, you know, so you, you you picked it up early, and uh, and you were uh, inspired very early, uh, mostly by a lot of English bands like the Rolling Stones and and whatnot, from what I've read, anyway. But you got yeah. right the hell out there in the UK around about '69 or so, like for the first time. I wanted yeah. to go in '68, but my parents were going to lock me up if I mentioned it one more time. So how did yeah, I, I knew that from 68 to 69, that things were going to change. I just inherently knew that the scene was going to change. And that in 68, um, it was going to go from what it actually did, which was from top 40 pop, psych, uh, short songs, you know, commercial Beatles, the move, the kinks, and it was going to become, you know, what it became. Prague was coming in. Um, and then, of course, Black you had Rocky Sabbath. music, and we'll get into yeah, that. Well, that's later on. Yeah. Right, 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 right. That's later on. Right. So, I mean, the first time I went there, the scene was still pretty buzzing. It was still in the psych era or it, I guess, was, sort coming of like out of, right. it was coming out of that i right. mean i saw bands like caravan and i saw yes before even before the first album came out and they was still there was a touch of prog and all all in there but there was still elements of of the pop so it was one foot still in say 67 68 mm -hmm. and the other foot where they were trying to go somewhere in 69 that was for the future. So it was an interesting time to, to be there. And like I said, it was still hopping. I mean, there were yeah. bands. I went to see bands every night. I went out every night. I bought records every day. Every now, do you mean in New York, New York, or do you mean in London? Or uh, in both. Yeah. Uh, in New York, I was sending for records to, yeah. to when I was a teenager, I was literally buying records. This is before, obviously, before you know where you could hit Amazon. Uh, I found a uh, a record store called H. W. Reed that one of the few that would export records, British records, to America. Mm. Luckily, I was in New York, so it's not like they had to send it to uh, L.A. or somewhere, you know, really distant for them. So I developed a relationship with this uh, store and just started buying everything under the sun, small faces, records, singles, uh, obscure small faces. And they had Ron Wood, right? What's that? Um, I, I'm just making the connection. OK, just so here's the thing. I, I read part of your book and you've basically yeah. got connections to like every major band in the late 60s, 70s. So I hear yeah. small faces and I'm like, oh, Ronnie Wood, he was in that, right? And didn't no, you have that with the Rolling face. Stones? He was in the faces. This is, yeah. I'm talking about Steve Marriott, Ronnie Lane. Ah. Ian oh, 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 gotcha. Sorry. That Good. version. Yeah, that one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, uh, and then when I went over there physically, I, I went to the record shop and I said, told them who I was and they were just mind blown <laughs> that I showed up and, 
it was a, I wouldn't say elderly, but it was a mature woman that was running the shop. And in back of her on the wall was like just hundreds of 45s. And I, of course, show up with a list a mile long of what I want, wanted, my want list. I take it out and I'm reading the titles and she's pulling out every record that I want. And there was like not one record where she said, I'm, I don't have it. I'm sold out. Nothing. She's just piling and piling and piling. And I mean, I left there with LPs and singles and that I still have to this day, you know, influenced me. So that was great. And then I'd, at night, I'd go to like hip clubs like the Speakeasy to see bands and the Marquee. And like I said, I saw Yes before they recorded. I saw Free. I saw Taste with Rory Gallagher. Mm-hmm. I saw Caravan. I, I saw mm-hmm. Spooky Tooth. Um, it was it was just mind blowing for uh, a kid that grew up in a tenement apartment in little Italy in, in New York. That was an Anglophile since, you know, 15 or 16 years old. So it was like a whole world opening up that I dreamt about and fantasized about. And that started me going, you know, from about 69 to 74, I was, you know, going back and forth until I finally just moved there for about three years and just stayed and uh, started to pursue a musical career, worked up the, the guts to, you know, bring my bass over there and audition for bands and, and think about, you know, the real big dream of being in a British band. So, um, which took, it took a few years, but by 73, I pulled it off. So, Sal, um, I mean, you, you, man, I mean, I, I can't imagine just like giving it that much of your life and efforts. Uh, I wanted to ask you, first, first of all, how did you learn the bass and what bass did you choose to start off with? Well, I'm totally self-taught. I learned, uh, learned from 45s. You know, it's stop it. You're, you're just by ear. By ear. And I had, um, I think, a Zimgar Japanese bass. And I can't even remember the make of the amp. It was just a total piece of crap. Sure. Both. I don't think I even have it, had it tuned correctly. But I could play Mr. Tambourine Man, the slide. So I started <laughs> there. Yeah. And um, then I think uh, a friend of mine who lived a couple blocks away, was savvy enough to say to me, you got the damn thing tuned wrong. So he retuned. <laughs> oh, this guy this, oh, this guy that told you you had it tuned wrong. You couldn't, you didn't know it was tuned wrong. Well, I had, I had, I think I had the, uh, the E string tuned to A. Mm. So it was like, it was like playing basketball with weights on your sneakers. Yeah. I guess these days when you got digital tuners, like, you know, yeah, there were no yeah. tuners back right. then. Yeah. So, and I had no, you know, instructor or music teacher. So I was figuring it out for myself. And uh, 
once it was tuned properly, it was like, as I said, it was like taking the weights off your sneakers when, when you're playing basketball, you know, I was like, <laughs> wow, yeah. this is so much easier than, yeah, yeah. than uh, you know, the action is on the basis so much easier this way. So, um, you know, then I graduated to Kinks Records and, yeah, and yeah. then of course McCartney, all McCartney's lines on Beatle Records were like an education mm -hmm. in itself. You could just put on A to Z of Beatle Records and learn the bass lines and you're getting an education. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk to you about that in particular because uh, I, I read from, from what I could read from your book <clears throat> that one of the first times, maybe the first time, that you went over to the uh, UK, you kind of stalked out uh, Paul. And I think you came across him. I said, well, in, in 70, by 71, I worked up the courage to bring my bass. I had a Hofner bass. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know what that is. I do, yeah. That's what McCartney played. Yep. It was a violin-shaped bass. So I brought my Hofner bass over to London and started auditioning for bands um, like Family and um, a, a group called Spring. And, and I jammed with Davey Olis from The Nice and just a lot of stuff like that. And one day I got a call from, I met someone who put me in touch with a producer and I went to Denmark Street. That's it's kind of like the music business hub of London. Mm. to meet with this producer and he said i have a session for you and uh, it's a band called smokestack crumble and this okay. is what you're getting paid and i was like well it all sounds good to me and i went in and did this session and um had the headphones on and what stuck out to me listening in the headphones while we were playing was this drummer that sounded like john bonham's younger brother meets Ringo, you know, a total yeah. monster player. And I said, well, uh, I want to get to know that guy, you know? So we, got, we kind of got friendly and, um, fast forward a couple of years later, he's in rock music. Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So that's kind of where I wanted to go to next. Um, so you, you made a lot of trips over to UK, London specifically, from New York. Uh, I do know uh, from my <laughs> research as a, as a sparksologist that you were there in uh, 1972 and Ron and Russ were looking for a new band and they passed you over because you were not actually English. Well, I actually... To start from the beginning, I, one of the few people that saw them live in New York, the uh, Mankey Brother version. Yes. The half, the half Nelson, even though there were Sparks. Right. Uh, I saw them at Max's Kansas City. I think there were about five people there, uh, one of which was Todd Rundgren, uh, myself and my friends, and I think maybe a couple other guys. And... Uh, watching this band thinking, well, they're like the greatest band I've ever seen. So you, you were know? there on the ground floor, really? Like as a I'm fan? I'm on the ground floor. and Like, uh, like, like Hilly. 
yeah, I'm totally mind blown by them. And I think the first first record was out only. I don't even think Wolfer was out yet. I yeah. could be wrong. But anyway, they were fantastic. And um, anyway, I'm in London in 72 later that year. And I run into them in the street. And I introduce myself and say that I saw you live at Max's. You guys are great. This, that, and the other thing. And I don't think we got into the conversation of them being there to put a band together. Because that was 72. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe they played with the old band at, at the Marquee. They did, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that, But they I came back. Into, yes, I ran into them on that trip. So then... I get word that they're putting a band together in London that they had uh, disbanded the Mankey brother situation. And they are now in London permanently to put a band together, but they want British guys. And I knew that when I made the phone call, but I had to make the phone call anyway. You couldn't even fake an accent. Come on. Uh, yeah. Well, listen to me. Um, <laughs> So fake in the accent. So I remember distinctly going to a pay phone and, you know, putting the coins in and spoke to Russell. And I said, you know, told him the whole story, this, that, and the other thing. And he said, we really can't even audition you. We're looking for British guys. That's the whole reason why we're here. And we had a nice chat and about, what what their intentions were and they were interested he was interested to know what i was doing there and i said well i'm here you know pretty much doing the same thing you're doing you're looking for british musicians and so am i mm. uh, i'm looking for a british band um, but i'd be glad any day to play with you guys so anyway we go uh, separate ways and um as luck would have it when i got the gig with roxy um, they were in the audience at the Rainbow, which is the big venue in London that we played. Roxy played like three or four nights. And uh, Ron Russell, a guy named Joseph Flory, and John oh. Hewlett, yeah, yeah, were in the audience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got two gigs at it. <laughs> You know, I was lucky enough to impress them and John. So, who I'm sorry, can I interrupt you? So, like, so uh, from from that show that the shows that you did with Roxy, the Sparks managers and Ron and Russ were impressed enough to give you another go later. No, what happened was when when my time came up to do Big Beat, they remembered me. Gotcha. From gotcha. Seeing me with Roxy. So they wanted me involved, but that's a good three years later. Right. I got you. And I wanted, yeah. so first of all, two of my favorite bands of all time are Roxy and Sparks. Me too. So, awesome. I was, <laughs> in two, you. <laughs> I was in two of my favorite bands of all time. So like, um, how did they, how did they approach you for that? Because, you know, you know, they, they had their studio band. And they just did what for your pleasure, I guess, or maybe it was uh, the next one country. Uh, I, I forget what it was. 
But um, what happened was, um, I was working in a record store illegally, by the way, without a work permit in London. And I was lucky enough that Paul Thompson and Eddie Jobson came in the record store looking. Uh, I think Paul wanted a family album, and and Eddie Jobson was looking for Zappa. Okay, records. those are very disparate wants. Yeah. So yeah. I did a smart thing. I did two smart things. First, I asked if they were looking for a bass player for a tour, for the tour, and then I said we didn't have the record that they were looking for, even though we did. And I and I said I can order it for you and have it in a couple of days, thinking that they would have to come back to pick up the records. So in the meantime, Paul said to me, "We have a guy for for the tour, a guy named Johnny Gustafson, who did the Stranded Studio album." Mm. And I was like, "Damn!" You know, I said to myself. But what happened was, when they came back to pick up the records that I supposedly ordered for them, Paul said, "Oh, by the way, Johnny can't do the tour, and we're auditioning people." <laughs> okay. Why? Why didn't you come down to Air Studios, isn't it? Where we're re we're mixing and yada yada yada. We're putting together the record and. Uh, we're auditioning guys to go on tour. Right. So they already had the record mixed, I suppose. So you were not invited well, into any of the... Well, uh, here was the thing. Time. What the deal was, was when I went down to audition, I, I literally went to Air Studios and met the whole band. I met Chris Thomas, uh, mm -hmm. the produ producer. Yeah. We all know who he is. Yep. Uh, he did the White Album. He did the Pretenders, the Sex Pistols, Procol Harum. Mm -hmm. So um, they're mixing the record while I'm supposed to be auditioning, and they're and I think Brian is right is somewhere else in another room writing lists. Brian, you know, was still there at that time. No, he was gone. I'm talking about Brian Ferry. Oh, oh sorry, 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 Ferry. Right, Brian Ferry is somewhere else in another room writing last minute lyrics. It was a real hectic vibe going on. I didn't get to audition until I think the second or third time I went up to the studio. So I kept going up there, kept getting drunk with them and got friendly with them. And I'm thinking, well, this is, you know, turning into a, a nice friendly situation. Now all I got to do is play and get the gig, you know? Right. So I on the third, the third visit, um, they say to me, um, go in the studio and jam with Paul, you know, and I said, just him and I, you know, bass and drums. And they said, yeah. So I said, okay. So I take out my bass and I go in and I'm jam basically jamming with the drummer and on the other side of the glass of the rest of the band and Chris Thomas, just looking and listening. And I'm just thinking, man, I'm going to just play every riff I've ever learned in my life. And, and 
hope for the best, you know. And um, I got the gig. They said, you know, go to go to the office, get mm-hmm. some money for clothes, yeah. um, yada, yada, yada. And I was as green as could be. I didn't know what anything was. I mean, the, they gave me the only mm-hmm. lead they gave me was that they were bringing down the glam image just a touch brian said to me brian yeah that must have been about 74 75 or something yeah it's 73 73 okay Um, so we're 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 still gonna look sharp so here i am in london i don't know where to even start to buy clothes and i know nothing you know and i'm now in the biggest band in england you know yeah yeah on on island records yeah i mean you know number one records and and the whole bit and i go up to eg go to uh, up to eg management who managed t-rex and elp and and roxy and brian eno and and it was just like uh, well here's a budget you know go to so i had an outfit made and uh talking salary and diems none of which i knew anything about i mean who coached you on that what's that who coached you on that how to ask for per diems and all that stuff i did okay i learned on the fly cool i used i used my street smarts that (laughs) that i developed as growing up in little italy Italy. uh, as a kid growing up in little italy it really came in handy to um to grow up, you know, with street smarts, and uh, I just use my noodle and figure it out as I went along. You know, I didn't know. I don't know how much to ask for. I didn't know what monitors were. So I'd never of, seen monitors. Yeah, I said, monitors. I said uh, to myself. I guess I got. Know. Sorry about that. So yeah, I guess I got three big questions here. So one. Uh, you know, you were tapped several times uh, to uh, tour uh, with with Roxy right. in the uh, mid seventies, right? Um, uh, 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 question number one is: Did you have um, did you have a lot a lot of interaction with the main players? You know, like Brian, of course, and uh, but of course the others. And did, did they like invite you into their space? Like, you know, you were one of them while you were on yes. tour. Absolutely. It was, it was a band and I was, um, for the time I was in it, I was definitely part of the band and in all the photographs included in everything. Um, no one told me what to play. Um, it was, a, they didn't tell you what to play. No, no. So either they liked what I was playing and had you knew, no... You knew the songs. Huh? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, you, you knew the songs, but they just gave you the yeah the freedom to play what you, what you wanted to play. Yeah. Well, that, basically... That's amazing. But I followed the script mostly. There was only maybe a couple, more than a couple, a few where I took 
maybe some liberties, but they they liked what I what I was doing, and uh, you know, it was a great personal and musical relationship. And again, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm in touch with all of them to this day, just like I'm in touch with Ron and Russell, um, especially Phil and Paul. I still keep in touch with. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, I'll see Andy and and Brian when he comes to New York. And um, I saw them at the Hall of Fame two years ago, and I was invited to the to the show, and invited to the rehearsal. Um, and you know, it's it's been a mad. It was a magical, almost a fairy tale. Yeah, I'm sure. It's hard to describe. <laughs> being in London. Well, yeah. Dreaming about being in London and then <laughs> dreaming about being in a British band and then being in the biggest and in my opinion, probably one of the best and certainly the coolest band ever. Um, yeah, they they're great people. They're smart, they're fun, they're funny, they're intelligent. They're obviously tremendously talented, and um, yeah, it's a very um, it's a it's a very emotional con- connection. It's um, no no disparaging any other band I've been in, you know. But Roxy is like it's like your first your first girlfriend, your first love. Yeah. You I know, mean, I, I it couldn't. Was, it's uh, it's very emotional for me. Because it was uh, a, a dream come true, you know, a fairy tale. You know, I couldn't believe I was living it. One theme that keeps uh, coming up uh, for me, you know, just as I'm reading excerpts from your book and reading uh, from interviews is how you, you know, have come to idolize these musicians and these figures <clears throat> and you want nothing more than to be a part of their scene or to play with them and like voila there you are you're yeah. doing it and you're doing it again and again and again and again yeah. like yes I'm a, i was in yeah. the right place at the right time a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's pretty incredible um all right so let's let's go back uh, let's go past that for a moment um so roxy music fantastic love it um i'm glad you were there you know alive for those guys for those, those few years uh so you went back to new york yes and um and then it was uh sparks's manager paul uh sorry who was it yeah hewlett john hewlett john hewlett yes sorry john hewlett at that time uh yeah. you're in contact with and i i don't know if you had already uh put together milk and cookies or what they were they were uh, an existing band milk yeah. and okay so i was back in new york and john and joseph flurry <laughs> found, yeah. Yeah, found this band milk and cookies and um ian north was savvy enough to send the milk and cookie demos to two people tony defreeze <laughs> <clears throat> and John Hewlett, who fell in love with with the band, but had one condition. He told told them 
Um, I, I will manage you. I will get you Muff Winwood to produce the record. I will get you to England. But there's one caveat. Mm-hmm. You have to change your bass player. And <laughs> I, want Sal, I want Sal Maida in this band. And your old bass player out. So okay. that's that's how that happened. So can I ask you about that? Because obviously, yeah. you know, uh, so John Hewlett, long uh, ties to Sparks, quite a long yeah. time. Yeah. So do you think that that was uh, connected to it? I'm trying to find the right, right way to to describe this. So uh, did did he already have a uh, um, a connection to your talent, or did he already have like a, a, a you know, um, yes. appreciate your okay? Yeah, he saw me at right. the Rainbow. And okay, he loved the way I played, and he was a bass player in John's Children, so he loved the way I played, and he wanted me at Milk and Cookies, or else he wouldn't do right. it. Gotcha. So I was a little hesitant. Um, I was like what's wrong with the guy they have now? Right. Why are you firing him? Um, and am I, are you sure I'm the right guy for this? And I said, I'll tell you what, let me play with them and see how it goes. See if there's chemistry there. Cause I'm just not going to like join a band sight unseen because you think, you know, this is the way it should be. Let so you were kind of planted into that band. Well, I think he had plans to use the Sparks team with Milk, the exact team and strategy. Well, who with, else besides you? Yeah, with Milk and Cookies and have it blow up in, in England uh, and, and be a big uh, sensation. Uh, which it never became, but that's another story. So uh, anyway, I went down and played with them, and it sounded absolutely great. Mm -hmm. Like, note one, boom, like, you know, like the New York Dolls meets the Ramones before, you know. It had that energy. uh, the, The songs were great. The whole... The whole image was great, and they were, and they were young guys. I mean, yeah. they were eighteen. I mean, you know, I, I was a little older than them. <clears throat> John's thinking was also I would be a guy would experience that it would just be four eighteen-year-old kids that never and this did is, anything. This is like nineteen seventy-three, right, or seventy-four. This is seventy, the end of seventy four by now. Okay, gotcha. Okay, yeah. So um, he basically, um, once I join, makes everything happen that he said he would. I mean, Muff Winwood literally flies from London to Justin, the singer's basement in Woodmere, Long Island, where yeah. we'd been rehearsing. And we play a set for him, and um, Muff says, yeah, let's do a record. Mm-hmm. That was like, wow, really? 
And um, I was back in London. gotta ask you so the, uh so that record was produced by by muff winwood right yes, and it was. you know of course you know the connection you know that muff had to you know sparks and a couple of years before that so i mean at that point were you thinking like yeah you know maybe you know through this connection i might be able to talk to the those guys again uh no not while i was in milk cookies okay well it never crossed my mind um <laughs> Because they were, they were in the midst of their glory days in London. You know, they were. Well, I, yeah, I guess it was then. Yeah, it was propaganda and indiscreet, and mm. I had no, no, I didn't, no. I didn't have that in my in my mind at all. So, uh, how did the the band from Milk and Cookies uh, come about? Uh, you know, I've read a little bit about it, and I'm kind of late to the game. But uh, from your perspective, how did that come about? Uh, They formed as um, like 17-year-old kids and were playing locally in Long Island. And Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think Justin ever sang before. I mean, you know, Ian had written some songs and um, then they had Mike the drummer and they had another bass player. And they were they were doing 
you know, opening for the, for the fast and mm -hmm. they were playing local gigs and, uh, not doing much, just getting it together, germinating, you know, mm -hmm. their situation. And then, uh, as I said, um, I don't want, I think that, I don't think that went on for more than a year. No. Yeah. And then I come along and, and John Hewlett comes along and, Bango were in, were in London uh, and, and uh, Basing Street doing a record with Muffin Wood and, and um, you know, which never came out until 76. Right. They didn't put the record out. They didn't, they yeah. didn't, uh, they canned it until 76 when punk started to happen. Island Records thought, don't we have something similar to that laying around <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny like when i i, I you know i talked to like music nerds my age and like milk and cookies fuck yeah we know milk and cookies like you know they were punks you know in the late 70s early 80s like now nah, they're before that and you know they don't know yeah, we, um, were, we were a sort of uh in between unfortunately we were we were after the dolls mm -hmm. and we were and when we were before the Sex Pistols and all the Ramones, punk scene, the, the Ramones, yeah. CBT punk scene. So yeah, yeah. we were sort of a band out of time. Yep. It was right. an awkward time. Yeah. yeah. We were stuck in the middle. <laughs> yeah. 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 Stuck in the middle with you. I get, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally, uh, totally get it. So uh, let's skip ahead of it. Um, so you're in New York City and you've been there for a couple of years then. And then Sparks are back. Yeah, they're they want to get a new band together for their new uh, New York album. Yeah, they're and doing. They uh, knew you because they had seen you and you had auditioned before. Right. So basically, they came. They were in now. They're on Columbia Records in the United States, but they're still on Island in England. Mm -hmm. And but they're dealing with Columbia records and they come to New York and I have the gig. So sparks is, uh, Ron Russell and me, and we're looking for obviously a drummer and a guitar player to do big beat. So they decided early on to go with you, Ron and Russ. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had the gig. Right. It wasn't like they came to New York to audition bass players. I already, I already had the gig. Nice. And um, we, as as you know, from talking to Hilly, probably, mm -hmm. um, we wind up in Mick Ronson's loft <laughs> somehow, <laughs> and. Um, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm playing with Sporks and Mick Ronson. And there's this guy on the couch who hasn't said, real shy and hasn't said a word. And I'm, I don't even know who he is. And so after talking for a while and what we want to do and how we want to approach it and this, that, and the other thing, mm -hmm. I had to go in another room and play. And a guy that was sitting on a couch and hadn't said a word and was real shy yeah. came out to be Billy. And um, and he gets behind the drums and 
I think the first song we, we played was uh, Big Boy. You know, we start to, we start to, you know, jam out on, uh, on that groove and it just sounds amazing. You know, it's really rocking and, um, and Ronson sounds like Ronson, you know, he's got his Les Paul plugged in to, to whatever amp he was using, you know, the Ziggy Stardust sound. And, and I'm thinking, man, the, the guy on the couch, that's a shy, that wasn't saying a word. He sure is a good drummer. You know, I, I didn't even know he was going to be turn out to be a drummer. So, um, we basically, I don't know for how many days we continue to uh, do pre-production on some of the big beat songs. I don't know exactly how many we got to. Uh, maybe we did pre-production on five or six with Ronson. Um, how many days? I, I can't remember. It's so long ago, but it seemed like at least a, five days to a week that we worked with that particular ensemble of Hilly, me, Mick, and Ron and Russell before. And this is one of the great mysteries of my musical life that I still don't have an answer for. Uh, Ronson decides he doesn't, he bails on the project. Um, to this day, I still don't know why. I've heard various theories and rumors. Hilly probably knows more about it than I do because he was, you know, best friends with Mick. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, we're out of guitar player. Mm -hmm. So, um, Jeff Salen? I bring in, I suggest to Ronald Russell, I know a guy. And uh, so in the interim, and I don't know the machinations of this either because I'm not present between, I'm not there during the relationship of Hilly and Mick, but somewhere along the line, Hilly becomes a member of Sparks, mm. even though he's, he's, he's in Mick Ronson's band. So Ronson bails for whatever reason, which I, I still don't know. And now Hilly's in Sparks. And I tell Ron Russell, I got a guy. He's great. So I approached Jeff Salen I, mm. from Tough Darts, who uh, passed away, um, was a monster guitar player. Um, as a matter of fact, to this day, when people hear filler up, when they hear the solo, they say to me, that's Ronson, right? Oh, really? Yeah. And I go, no, 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 that's Jeff Salem. That's how good he was. Uh, and Jeff came down and um, basically we started from scratch and we worked up all the big beat songs and Rupert Holmes was around here and there. Yeah. What was that like, by the way, to work with that, that guy? Yeah. Well, Rupert was, he was contracted to do that record. Mm -hmm. um, 
He seemed to have a pretty solid idea. Yeah, he had he had done. I want to hold your hand. With, <laughs> right, but he wanted something different from Big Beat. Yeah, so he was booked to do Big Beat. Right. So the theory that goes around that Mick was only wanted to do it if he could produce it. I don't see where that was possible. Where they were going to fire. Since they had a contract with Rupert Holmes, they're going to fire Rupert Holmes and then all of a sudden insert uh, Mick Ronson as lead guitarist and producer. Uh, as far as I know, Rupert is it's signed, sealed, delivered that he's doing. He's producing Big B. Sure. This yeah. is Columbia Records you're talking yeah. about. And we're booked into media sound to start this thing like yesterday, you right. know, as soon as we can, you know. What were those sessions like? Well, here's the thing. The sessions were, and I hate to speak of, of uh, the dearly departed, but uh, there's no other way to put this, so I'll just say it very bluntly. Uh, Jeff turned out to be a big pain in the ass. Um, now you got to remember on Big B, the engineers were Bob Clear Mountain, okay, Harvey Goldberg, Goldsmith, whatever his name was, and I think Joel Diamond okay. was the third guy. So these are all Columbia guys, I guess. I don't know if they were contracted yeah. to Columbia or they worked at Media Sound, but Bob Clear Mountain alone, that name is, I mean, that's, you're talking about A plus, top notch, top level guy. So what happened was we cut the record and Bob did a rough mix, Bob Clear Mountain, of the record. And Jeff was screaming loud in the rough mix a les paul through a marshall screaming loud on every track okay so a couple of days later um we were called in to listen to the final mix and jeff was suddenly compressed and squashed to the point where hilly and i it was the Hilly Michaels and Salmeda. Yep. Okay. Album. I get it now. No. Which was not a bad thing no. for us. Not you know, good. we we played great together and we were became the featured this and if you remember, there's not a lot of keyboards. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Yeah, you two guys were the anchor for that album. No question. Yeah. It was it yeah. was you and Hilly. We, the reason we became the anchor was somewhere in there. I don't know if Ron Russell talked to Rupert or Rupert approached Ron Russell. Somewhere in there, Jeff kind of fucked himself out of the gig and out of being. What do you mean the gig? The live gig or what? Both. Both. I mean, he's on the whole album. He's on the whole album. Yeah. On the whole album, and um, as I said, Clear Mountain had mixed like on eleven. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. No, it's hard. It's, it's like not hard. It's hard to hear them. I mean, because you guys are so, you know, so somewhere ten. in there, the decision <clears throat> was made to squash them, compress them. I see. And uh, that's the way that went down. So subsequently, unbeknownst to him, there was no way he was getting the live gig. Uh, well, was that a personality thing? Absolutely. Gotcha. Okay. So skip ahead a bit. Um, my opinion, good album. I love it. Not my favorite, but good. And you guys yeah. made it good. Um, and then you, you toured, uh, 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 I guess, only in the States. Uh, yes. And um, you guys uh, at some point uh, shared the stage or, you know, whatever, uh, switched the stage with uh, uh, Patty Smith. Yeah, Patty Smith. Right. Yeah. We and split. From what I've read, that was the hardest part of your tour. Um, Do you see it that way? Because, only because. Um, the audiences were so split. Like when we played in Canada, I think we played in Montreal and Toronto. Sparks were, we would get, they were screaming, you know, we were the headliner. Yeah. Basically. I mean, Patty wouldn't come out of the room. She was so freaked out how well we went over. On the flip side of the coin, when we played in Detroit, mm. they threw things at us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's the famous story of they threw a beer, empty beer bottle, um, I'm assuming at Russell's head, and missed <sighs> by about 20 feet and hit Hilly. Yeah. Smack in the forehead. Yeah, right about that. Song, which was Big Boy. And uh, so I turn around, we all turn around, and we're horrified because <laughs> Hilly's playing and uh, gallantly carrying on with blood streaming down his face onto his shirt. And so that was pretty much a disaster. And that was Detroit. So, yeah, that was the kind of thing where it was like, okay, well, who's the audience going to hate more tonight? Right. I'm sure like it varied just from venue to venue, right? It varied from venue to venue. If I'm not mistaken, this is around the time when Ron would decide to grab his piano bench and smash it, you know, just like Ron, Ron was Hendrick doing to do his... uh, uh, Pete Townsend piano. Act, <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly that. Yes. As a matter of fact, at the bottom line, I don't know if you're familiar with the bottom line. The bottom line is um, was it's closed now. Bottom line was a industry joint, very nice club, great sound. We played two nights. We killed. I mean, it was the best gigs of the tour. It was at the end of the tour, so we were tight as could be, and we killed. And it was bottom line was the type of place where they had tables and chairs and all the Columbia. Brass oh, okay. was at in the front table. Yeah. So Ronnie is doing his Pete Townsend smash the piano bench bit, and he's 
got all the legs off the piano <laughs> bench, and there's barely any room to, to do this, to pull off the full act, you know. So what he does is he, he puts the piano bench against his chest and literally does a swan dive. Holy across shit. The That's what he did? Yeah, across the Columbia executive's table and knocks over all their food and beer and and drinks. And le- <laughs> so that was, um, I don't think that was such a good idea, but no. that happened. That happened at, a, at probably our best show where we just blew the roof off the place. So, um, yeah, that, that did happen. You know, so many people talk about how those guys are so square. And that kind of behavior just, like, uh, seems weird. So, like, did those guys do stuff like that? Just, like, stage dive and, like, just do crazy shit? Um, not really. Okay. Not really. That was kind of, uh, I don't know what he was working out on that tour, Ronnie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was working out, um, being in the who maybe. Yeah, Uh, maybe so. uh, A Pete Townsend fantasy. uh, Yeah. Yeah. uh, I don't have, I don't have to play that. A lot of keyboards on these big beat songs. So I'm going to do that. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do something else. Uh, so, let me ask you a question. This is a question that I ask uh, every uh, uh, Sparks uh, band member that I've ever talked to. Um, what was your uh-huh. reaction to being let go? You know? Uh, well, my reaction, um, since I knew their history, since mm-hmm. I knew they... they um, let's say left behind the LA band to mm-hmm. go to England. Then they left behind the English band to go to uh, New York. Uh, I knew it was only a matter of time and that it wasn't going to be permanent. I had no illusions. I didn't know when it would happen, but I knew it would happen. Right. And, um, I landed on my feet in the fa- in the fact that um, I had a good relationship with them, and I had a good relationship when they informed me of. Uh, it's basically Columbia saying, "Big beat didn't happen. We got no money for you for the next record." Wow. As a matter of fact, the A and R guy is producing the next record, meaning introducing. Yes, that one. You, you know when the A and R guy is the producer that you're in trouble. They don't even want to spend <laughs> As a money. musician, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring it in a producer. So the A and R guy wants to bring in guys that read charts. Lee Rittenauer, uh, I know uh, was on. Yes, record. he was in there. Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah so, so they wanted that album, but, to, yeah, they, could, they could write a chart, put it in front of them, and cut right. the track fast and. Bing, bang, boom. And uh, I landed on my feet where I stayed in L.A. And um, I did like five records for a guy called Kim Fowley. So I ghosted on a Runaways record, meaning I played on. But I wasn't credited. I was just paid. 
Um, and I did four. I did a Sherry Curry solo album. I did Venus and the Razor Blades. I did a Kim Fowley solo album. I did another one. Uh, you know, I did about five records for Kim. So I was working and I wasn't shell-shocked by being let go uh, tell me, at all. Tell me, I'm going to jump ahead. Tell me about your time with Cracker. Because oh, I'm, wow. I, I'm a Gen X Gen X kid here. Like, I grew up with Cracker. Cracker, like, when I was 13, like, that was my band. Uh, I joined them in 2006 and played with them till 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, eight years. It's a long time. Yeah, long time. Did, um, did a full-on uh, studio album in 2009 where we all co-wrote the songs together which was unheard of uh david always wrote the songs by himself but to yeah. be fair uh he, he pretty much wrote the melodies and the lyrics you know he he, he was being pretty generous but we did uh at a, at a certain point by 2007, 2008, again, we became, because we were playing four or five nights a week and touring two, three weeks a shot, like everywhere, all over the country, around the world, we became absolutely lethal. We were tight and rocking and just killing it on stage. So I think that was David's um, reasoning for doing um that that album sunrise in the land of milk and honey with the band and then um i kind of did i played on a couple of songs on his solo record and i played on about five tracks on bakersfield to berkeley to Ber bakersfield whatever it's called i forget and uh i mean we went to iraq in 2009 really? Yeah. Uh, we played everywhere in the country two or three times. Uh, we went to Spain we, a lot. We went to Germany, but especially Spain, Cracker is big. So those were, mm. uh, those were really fun uh, tours in Spain. And um, Cracker fans are called crumbs. <laughs> oh, is that right? Okay. So it's not like if you're a camper van Beethoven fan. Are you also a crumb? That's what I want. You're also a crumb. Okay. Gotcha. So okay. It wasn't on a level of the dead or fish. <laughs> gotcha. It was, gotcha. It's a pretty loyal, pretty loyal and, and large enough fan base uh, to keep both bands, you know, afloat. And so did he reach out to you? I got the gig I um, through a guy named Kenny Margolis, mm -hmm. who was. Uh, uh, I would do a show every year called Joe Hurley's Irish Rock and Roll Review, in which we'd play on St. Patrick's Day, well near St. Patrick's Day, and do all do like Pogues and U2 oh, and Van Morrison, then Lizzie, you know. And uh, learn like 30, 35 songs, all different singers, have to play all different styles. So 
Kenny was in that band and he heard me play and he, and he said, dude, I mean, you're great. Would you want to be in it? And I'm in a band. We're looking for a yeah. bass player. Would you want to, would you be interested? I said, sure. Who's, who's the band? And he said, cracker. And, um, I really didn't know the music too much. I, I kind of, I knew low, obviously. Right. Of course. And, um, maybe teen angst I had heard, mm -hmm. but I really didn't know, you know, uh, so it's it was like one of those situations where I didn't really audition, although, so it started out as a rehearsal and a tour for three weeks. And then if it wasn't going to work, they would get somebody else. But I was in the band for three weeks and then I was in the band for eight years. So it worked out. Nice. Man, that's great. Yeah. And I, you know, I just gotta say, just like looking back on all this and listening and reading and, you know, again, you just seem to be sort of the, the, the Zalig, uh, to borrow a, uh, a Woody Allen, uh, reference. You were just there. I've been called that. Many <laughs> okay, so you yeah. know what I mean. So you like I have been called the Zelig of Rock. You were called the Zelig, okay. So you were there all been. the time, man. Uh, which is fantastic, and uh, and I'm and I'm great. You're still doing stuff now, and I yeah. really do hope you keep up with it. And also, thank you to Dan and What's that? Yeah. As I told you uh, at the beginning, I have a second book out. Second book. Let second tell book. me again. A second book, and it's it's written with another guy. I have a partner for this one named Mitchell Cohen, who's a um, veteran A and R man, um, writer for like Cream Magazine and uh, music business. And the book is called White Label Promo Preservation Society, and it's basically albums that did. Albums from the 60s and 70s that didn't make the top 100, but are great records that are underappreciated. So Mitchell and I wrote 25 essays each, and we invited 50 guests to write one essay each. And we have people like Lenny Kay, Marshall Crenshaw, uh, Reckless Eric. I got David Frick to write the forward. Uh, it's really an impressive um, undertaking. And the first pressing is already sold out. The second pressing is coming out this week. So um, that's the way. That's the way I spent my pen days in the <laughs> pandemic. And Mitchell, Mitchell and I were lucky enough to have a captured audience when we asked people to, to submit an essay because everyone was in lockdown and everyone was basically at home. So almost everyone we asked just said yes, you know. And originally it was going to be 25 guests and so many people wanted to do it, it went to 50. So it's basically 100 essays in there. Loosely, a hundred, maybe a hundred and one, and um, it's a really good, it's a really great read. 
I recommend it highly. Sal. Same publisher as my first book, Hozak. H-O-Z-A-C. HozakRecords.com. And that's where you can buy it. But you can't buy it yet until this week because the second <laughs> pressing will be leashed, unleashed upon the world as we were lucky enough to sell out on the first pressing. So, um, yeah, so that's one of the things. And this Sparks, Sparks documentary is of course. really yeah. a, a kick to get texts and emails from, you know, I just saw you on big screen and I didn't know you were in it and, and, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, Text uh, Sal. yeah, that's pretty cool. Anyway, it, Sal, thank you so much, man. It means so much to me to have your time uh, for this uh, little Sparks podcast. And I know you're doing great things. It's you know, it going to be, be uh, quite a bit easier in a few months. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yep. We'll, uh, we'll hook up on the book and uh, we will. what do you think? Definitely, man. Thank you so much, Sal. All right, Christian. Nice meeting you. You too. See ya.